turn with me to James. For the next five years, just assume that's what I'm going to say. Turn with me to James. No, we won't be in there that long. We're going to look at James 1, 5 through uh, 8 specifically, but uh, it speaks to 9 through 11 as well. James 1, 5 through uh, 8, I'll read through verse 11. Read with me as you turn there. James 1, 5 through 11. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises in a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Lord, help me to go as far as you take us in this word, but let me not go any further than you take us. Lord, let my words be true. And Lord, may we uh, feel the weight, but also the glory of what you're teaching us here today through your word. And may we be drawn uh, just in a deeper relationship with you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. James, obviously, the context here is trials. And he has said, consider it pure joy, my brethren, when you face trials of many a kind, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And he's, he's talked about, and let endurance have its perfect results so that it may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We've seen the last couple weeks that the attitude that we are to have in trials is joy because God is sovereign. And we've shown that the, the purpose of trials is endurance, what God is doing in us. He is creating His character in us. He is molding us. He is forging us into His character. When, when you and I discipline our children, or when you and I as parents allow our children to walk through things, you're doing it for a purpose. You, you have an end in mind. You, you have a goal, you have a vision, you have a, you have a purpose for which you're taking them or you're allowing them to go to learn to. They don't always know that, they don't always understand that, they don't see it. But you have a purpose in mind. And when you discipline your child, when you walk your child through things, you tell them what you're doing. You tell them why you're doing it. You, you tell them for what purpose maybe brought this about. You don't just discipline your child and then you tell them, now you go figure out, you go figure out why you got that spanking. I'm not going to tell you. You just go figure it out. And if you do that, don't do that anymore. You, you tell them. You, you let them know. I mean, obviously, we are sinful as parents. We're not perfect parents. But, but ideally, we do everything that we do as parents with an end in mind. We want our kids to look like this, or we want our kids to move to this. Hopefully, they're godly goals. And God is no different as a parent, as a father, except that He is perfect at all times. And when He takes us through something, when He allows us to walk through something, when he disciplines us, he has an end in mind. He has a goal for where he is taking us. He, he's, he has a reason for all that he's doing. He has a desired end, and that desired end 
could be Christ-likeness. That desired end could be for you to, through your illness, take the gospel to places that it would not have ever gone, or for you to have a have for him just to walk you through it so that, you know, six months, a year, however long later, you can walk others through the same thing that you've walked through. There's lots of reasons why God does this. But whenever God does this, he wants to tell us what's going on. He wants us to know what is going on. That's part of what we're seeing today. He's saying, I will give you the wisdom to persevere and to understand what I am doing. To see where I'm taking, to understand that I'm forming you. I, I, I will give you the wisdom to see that. And I hope you see that. This verse, chapter verse 5, is in the context of trials. Chap, verse 2 all the way down to 18 is all talking about trials. It's talking about trials in the beginning. It talks about temptations in 13 and beyond. That is the same word. The context tells us how to interpret it. But... but James is writing to say, look, when you're going through things, again, this was a persecuted church. This was a, a church that was troubled, that had a, in some ways did not equate suffering with an with a, with a idea that they were a child of God. How if I'm a child of God am I suffering? And James is saying, if you're wondering, ask. And the point that I want us to walk away from here today is this, that in order for believers to face trials with joy and with perseverance, we need wisdom from God. We need wisdom. And James is writing, and he's telling us that. And, and he gives us a couple, of, a couple of truths within that main point that I want us to see today. And the first one is this. We must first acknowledge, humbly acknowledge our need for wisdom. Some of us think we're greater than we are. We saw in Romans 12, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. We need wisdom. All throughout the Word of God, you see that, the need for wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. That's what James is getting at. There's a need for wisdom, and there's a need to know where wisdom can be found, and James is writing this. It's always been the issue. It always will be the issue. Wisdom, understanding. And, and James, in the Greek there, when he, where he would have written, it assumes that the need is there. He's not, it's not like you would read this and say, well, I don't need wisdom. He's not writing to me. No, no, you need wisdom. He's assuming that every single person that reads this needs wisdom. The problem is in our sinfulness, in our pride, in all these other things, we don't assume and we don't acknowledge that we need wisdom. Interestingly enough, in a very light context, in the book of Job, chapter 28, you can turn there, it's right before the Psalms. I'm going to read some passages out of there. Job was going through a tremendous trial, just like the reader's the recipients of this letter were going through a tremendous trial. And interestingly enough, in Job 28, Job spends the first 11 verses here in chapter 28 talking about mining for precious metals, how people will go to great lengths and great ends to find treasure and to seek things out. And starting in verse 12, Job equates that to wisdom. He turns to wisdom. And look at what he says in, in Job 28, starting in verse 12. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man doesn't know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not within me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor silver can be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir or precious onyx or sapphire. 
Gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned, and the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from, and where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears we have heard a report of it. God understands its way, and He knows its place. For He looks to the end of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. You see God's perspective there? When He imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when He set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, then He saw it and declared it and established it and also searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And depart from evil, and to depart from evil is understanding. Job's going through a great trial, and you know what he says? The greatest thing you could have is wisdom. James's people are going through a tremendous trial, and you know what he says you lack? You know what he says you need? You need wisdom. Greatest treasure to all, the greatest treasure to all is godly wisdom. It's a treasure to be searched out. It's a treasure to be dug deep for. It's a treasure that we should all be searching for, and it's found in God. That's what James is saying. True wisdom, godly wisdom, is not found in the world around us. It's not found in the precepts of this world. It's not found on the the daytime talk shows of this world. It's not found in, in just reading all these books that are out there on the shelves. True wisdom is found in God. Job and James are telling us the very same thing. And he's saying, you better make, you need to make every effort. You need to search after it. You need to run after it. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Job says that. Proverbs 1, 7 says that. Proverbs 9 says that. All throughout Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you noticed in Job, the perspective that he gave. God sees everything, past, present, future, all at once. He sees everything. He knows everything. And, and that's exactly why we need wisdom, because we don't. We're limited in our wisdom by three things. We're limited in our wisdom by knowledge. You see it there on your handout. We're limited. We don't know everything. We don't have all knowledge. You, you, some of, I've met some people who think they did, but they don't. We're, we're limited in perspective. We don't see everything. You know, so when you're in a parking lot, you take your child by the hand. Why? Because your eye line is higher than theirs. You see things that they don't see. They can't see over the car that's in front of, that's in front of them. You can. They can't see over the bump. You can. God's perspective is much greater than ours. He sees the end of where these things are headed. We lack perspective. But also we lack experience. Many of us are going through things for the very first time. When we walk through trials, we have no idea what's going on. We're limited in all these areas. We can't see the big picture. God, in comparison to us, has perfect knowledge. He knows everything. The the word there is omniscient. He's all-wise. He's all-knowing. He has an eternal perspective. The Bible makes it very clear. He sees everything past, present, future in the now. He doesn't learn anything. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing surprises him. He's not taught. He's all-knowing. And he knows full well what we're going through. He knows full well. He's been there, done that. Hebrews 4, 5 reminds us that we do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who was tempted in all things that we are, yet was without sin. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. 
Jesus was tempted in all of those, yet was without sin. All of our temptations, all of our experiences, you can put them in one of those three buckets. And Jesus faced them. If you want to read about that, you can turn to Matthew 4. Ultimately, and ultimately, here's what it boils down to. Yet with, Jesus was without sin. Why? Because of character. What we need more than anything is character. And God gives us His character. He gives us His righteousness, which God's character is the embodiment of wisdom. And James, as a Jew, James knew they viewed wisdom as the practice of righteousness. It was the practice of righteousness in everyday life. A practice of righteousness. It was, it was moral discernment that allowed you to meet every trial, every demand of life with decisions and actions that were in line with God's character. For a Jew who James was writing, they knew that wisdom was attached to character. It was character. It was right conduct. That's exactly what God has offered to us through Christ. It says, He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. You look at Romans 8, that, he is that his, his goal is those whom He predestined, He foreknew, and He's walking them into conformity to Christ's image, character. We saw early on, sacrificial mercy was a, a characteristic of our Father. That's wisdom. We need a character. We need to be changed from the inside out, and that's what God is doing. We need wisdom. And if we want wisdom, we're going to have to humble ourselves and ask for wisdom. We see that in verse 5. But not only in verse 5 do we see that we, we need to ask for wisdom, we must humbly go before God and pray for wisdom. We have to acknowledge our need for wisdom, but then how do we get it? We must pray for wisdom. That's what James says here. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. What James is saying here is when you go through trials, when you go through struggles, when you go through things that you're not understanding, the place to go, the person to go to is God. It's God. More than anything else, the person that we're to turn to in our trials is God. And oftentimes, that's, that's maybe the last person we go to. It's like, okay, all else has failed, let me pray about it. All else has failed. No, turn to God. Ultimately, that's, what we, that's who we need and what we need in these trials is character. What we lack in the trials is character. And what James is teaching us is that God uses trials to draw us to Himself. He's good in that. The, the problem is that until we see and until we understand the character of God, the sacrificial, merciful character of God, until, until we see a lack of that characteristic in our own lives, until we acknowledge a true need, we won't turn to God. We'll try to make it our own way. We'll try to make it relying on other people. We'll try to make it relying on the philosophies of this world. And time and time again, God allows us to go through trials to, to, to break our, our dependence and our, and, our, and our attraction to the things of the world. And we don't turn to God. And the fact that we don't oftentimes turn to God first teaches us some things about how we view His character. And, and our failure to ask God implies two possible problems in our character. Number one is that we're blind to our need. The first problem is this. Oftentimes we don't realize our need. We have a need for wisdom. And oftentimes we're blind to it. 
The other possible option is this. We do not understand or value the sacrificial and merciful character of our God. And therefore, we don't turn to Him. Man, man demonstrates and understand that he understands the value of God's righteousness, of His wisdom, by turning to Him, by running to Him, by asking and until we recognize our spiritual poverty, until we recognize in contrast to that the richness of our great God, the, the righteousness of His character, we won't quickly and we won't repeatedly run to God. We won't turn to Him. This is a plea for mercy and this is a plea for grace. And what James is saying is, do you understand, do you trust the character of God enough to turn to Him first, foremost, and alone? Do, do you understand Him? Because godly wisdom is the embodiment in His character. Again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you understand His character? Everything about His actions, everything about the Lord's actions flow from His character. If you look at, at Proverbs 2, verses 1-11, through 11, listen to this. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom from the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Psalm 3 says, Thou, O Lord, are a shield about me, the glory and the lifter of my head. Verse 8, Guarding the paths of justice, and He preserves the way of His godly ones. Then, listen to me, then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity in every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you, understanding will watch over you. Verse 12, To deliver you from the way of evil. That's exactly what James is saying. He's saying, God gives out of His character. God gives out of the sacrificial, merciful character that He has. He's gracious, and he, James says He gives without reproach. You've got to understand, the God of this Bible, the one true God, is a giver. It is inherent to His nature to give. He is a giver. Ephesians says he lavishes things upon us. James says he gives to all without a reproach. The verb here, forgive, in the Greek is in the present tense. It literally means he continually gives. He is ever ready to give. You will never come to him at a time when he is not able or ready to give. We serve a God who is ever ready to give. Why? Because that is his character. And what James is getting at is that that's where how we view God comes into play. The non-believer views God oftentimes with a clenched fist, that, he, that he's vindictive, that he's just trying to get you, that he's just waiting to bop you on your head, that he's withholding from you, that he's not out for your happiness. That's how a non-believer oftentimes, he's stingy. And guess what? They won't turn to him. Believers who understand this word and who study God realize his sacrificial mercy how He walks with us with an open hand. And it's that open-handedness of God that drives believers to run to Him. Sacrificial mercy. And look at what He says. He get, who gives to all generously 
and without reproach. The word generously literally means unconditionally. He gives unconditionally. It, it points to a God who simply gives because the asker asked. He, he gives with the sole purpose of asking the person who needs the help sacrificially. It, it, it literally points to, uh, sometimes it, it points to wholeheartedness. And here's the point. God is unreserved in His giving of wisdom to those who ask. He gives sacrificially. He gives mercifully. He doesn't re- Listen, He doesn't refuse it. The word reproach there means this. God doesn't refuse our requests based on our past failures. He doesn't refuse our requests based on our past failures. He, he doesn't give more, but at the same time, He doesn't give more based on our past successes. Oh, well, Chris did a good job last time. I'm going to give him a hope. No. He doesn't withhold based on our past failures. He doesn't give more based on our our, our past successes. When we ask Him, He doesn't remind us of our sin. He doesn't bring up all the times in the past that we've asked. He doesn't scold us for for our past requests and, and how we asked in an unworthy manner. And we'll get to that. God gives sacrificially. He gives without reproach. What James is saying here and what he's teaching us is this, is God's gift of wisdom is measured by what He designs, not by what we deserve. It's given by what He designs and not by what we deserve. It's based on Christ, it's based on the gospel, and what Christ and the gospel accomplish, not what Chris Basham accomplishes. And we lack not only the wisdom to decide and to perceive trials well, well, but we lack wisdom to ask God why, because we don't understand His character. And oftentimes, we think of God, and we think that He responds the way that we respond. And we oftentimes do not give things without reproach. God does give things without reproach. We give things based on past successes or failures. God says, I'm not like you. We love those who love us. He says, I don't love that way. We love those who, are, who, who maybe can help us down the road. And he says, I don't love people that way. I love without reproach. I give without reproach. You can look at Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. You can look at Psalm 81. He says, ask, knock, continue to knock, come unto me. And believing prayer, running to God in trials, is built. It is built upon the character of God. We'll run. You know why, you know why we love our moms so much? Is because you know why that's who we you know that's who our kids, when they have a bad dream or at night when something happens, they don't go to my side of the bed. Because you know what I'm gonna tell them? Go back to bed. There's already two people in this bed. They run to mommy's side. Next thing you know, there's kids we don't even know when I wake up in the morning. There's kids in our bed. I'm like, what are y'all doing in here? They know, hey, mommy is merciful. And it don't matter if I got up last night. It don't matter if this is the third bad dream tonight. I can go to mommy's bed. Mommy's going to pull me up in and she's going to comfort me. You know what daddy's going to do? Go back to bed. Hey, I saw a monster in my dream. Bradley, monsters don't exist. Go back to your bed. He had a dream the other night that an alligator was eating him. There ain't no alligator in this house. Go back to bed. I'm pretty sure there's no alligators in this house. Go back to bed. They know. But it's built on, listen, they know their mom. They know, and they know their dad, unfortunately. And I'm selfish. And when I go to sleep, you know what I want to do is sleep. And mommy, she'll give up her night of sleep for her kids. Daddy, if you're not bleeding, if there's not a major health concern, go back to bed. 
But see, it's built on character. It's faith. And we, we have to come to God with a wholehearted attitude about who God is and our reliance to Him. We cry out to God because we know that He's good. We run to God totally because we know that He's good. And if we're not sure what we're going through, we're not sure why, ask. Again, nobody disciplines their child and then says, hey, figure out why you're going through what you're going through. And God's character will not allow him to do that either. And, and that's, what James, that's what James is getting at when he says, he says, come to me and ask, but he gives some, give, gives some conditions. But he must ask, verse 6, in faith, without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The word doubting there, I think we would all agree that we go through times and, and live in times of doubting. Normal doubting is that, that just comes with the flesh. That's not what James is pointing to here. You can look to Mark 9 when he, Jesus is healing the son. And, and he says, if you believe, I'll do it. And he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's where we all live. What, what he's talking about here, he's getting to something deeper than just your occasional wondering. He, he's, the word here means a divided mind. The character of the person he's talking to here that can expect a whole heaping of nothing from God is a, is a, is a life that is unreliable. It's someone who is seeking to maintain, ship, maintain friendships with the world and at the same time friendships with God. It's somebody who, who is torn in two directions. You can look over in James 4, I think it's 3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You see the double-mindedness? You know, and, and, and he's saying, you're not going to get anything. It's, it's somebody who has competing desires in them. It's somebody who is questioning God's goodness. It's somebody who comes questioning his ways, questioning his in integrity, his character. The word there means somebody who is, is disputing or debating. Again, it points to somebody who really doesn't want what they're asking for, or they want it for their own good and not God's glory. And again, we all battle with doubts. Every single one of us, if we're honest, we battle with doubts. If you say you don't, then you battle with lying. We battle with doubts. And what James pictures here, again, it goes way beyond the occasional doubts that we battle in the flesh. James is pointing to somebody here who lacks consistency. They lack integrity. It's sort of a spiritual schizophrenia. Trying to please God in the world. It's the picture literally of somebody who is, who is fickle. It, a picture would be of a drunk person. Unstable. You would not walk up to a drunk person. Hey, will you hold my kid for me while I do this? You wouldn't do that. That's the same picture of God saying, I'm not, giving you, I'm not answering your request. You're fickle. You're drunk. You're unstable. That, that's what, that's, the, that's the, the, the degree to which James is dealing with here. Because listen to me. In wisdom, you know what God has given you when He gives you wisdom? He's given you Himself. He's given you Himself. He's given you Intimacy. And when we don't walk through things and then question His goodness or question His wisdom or question His character when walking through it, we trust that He's sovereign. We trust that He's good no matter what. 
And we ask in faith because that's who God is. He gives to all generously without reproach who ask in faith. He's sacrificially merciful in that way. When God is up to something, He wants to tell us. When He's taking us through something, He wants to tell us. Sometimes the prayer, God, reveal to me unknown sin, sin that I'm not aware of. That's how utterly sinful I am that I don't even know how sinful I am. Like, I'm not even aware sometimes when I sin. God, reveal that to me. That might be part of the trial. It's not always attached to sin. It could be to reveal attitudes that I don't know I have. It could be to reveal longings that I have that don't align with Him or or loves that I have that don't align up with Him. It, It could be to produce godly sorrow that brings about repentance, as 2 Corinthians talks about. There's a worldly sorrow that leads to death. Just being sorry because you got caught or sorry because you're embarrassed. But there's a godly sorrow, Paul says there, that leads to repentance. Maybe that's what God is doing. Ask. He'll tell you. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, a a very famous passage talking about wisdom. And and one we should all memorize, and I, I, I admit to you, I think I have it memorized, but right now my mind is in all over places. Part of me is my mind is trying to figure out what I'm going to do for Karen for lunch and dinner because she told me she wasn't cooking. So (laughs) you got any ideas? Text me. Text me. I need wisdom. Proverbs 3, 5, and she told me that's all she wanted. I said, Karen, I ain't foolish enough to say that's all you want. I know better than that. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. What James, what the writers of the Bible are teaching us is this. We need God's wisdom and character in order to see things as they truly are so that we can be stable in all circumstances. We need to be reminded of biblical truths when when who we are is rocked to the core. We need to be reminded of God's faithfulness. We need to be reminded of His promises. We need to be reminded of all that God is and his character, but we've got to ask in faith, and we've got to believe that he is a God who says and does what he says he does. And as Hebrews eleven six says, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Seek him. We, we've got to go after wisdom. We've got to admit our need. Excuse me, but we've got, to go out of, we've got to go at it with all our heart. We've got to be serious and undivided in our pursuit of it. Not trying to get all this worldly wisdom and then just add some biblical wisdom on top of it. No, we've got to forsaking all and trusting Him. Forsaking the ways of the world and trusting God. And and lastly, where this boils down to and where this points to is the gospel because God's wisdom ultimately points us back to the gospel. If we're honest, that's where we struggle We who are lovers of God, we who are followers of God, we who have repented of our sin, why do we struggle? Why do we go through these things? Look look with me as I read uh, 2 Corinthians 1. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2, uh, well, I'm not going to read it because we don't have time, but Paul says, he he says, I determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He took everything back to the gospel. And he says, for I determined to know nothing, like I read, he says, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. 
He talks about nobody in here knows God. Nobody taught God. Nobody educated God. He says a natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually praised. But the he who is spiritual appraises all things. If we're going to look at life, if we're going to look at trials, and we're going to appraise them rightly, we've got to look at them through the lens of the gospel. We've got to look at them through the eyes of the Spirit. The gospel alone allows us to go through trials with joy and a right perspective because the gospel reminds us everything we need is in Christ. Everything we need has been given to us. It, the gospel is, is, is key in trials because it reminds us that the world cannot destroy what we have promised to us in Christ. It reminds us that even if you lose your life, you gain. The gospel does that. And it's the wisdom of the gospel that gives us the perseverance to hang in there and navigate trials. Even in, in 1 Corinthians, I would challenge you to go read chapter 2, but also chapter 1. He says, starting in verse 18, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Listen, the world looks at a crucified Savior and thinks, That's ridiculous. What's the value? Listen to this. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. Paul is quoting Isaiah 29 there. He goes on to, to talk about the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The world look at that and say that's weak. And he say, no, no, the cross is power. He goes on to talk about, consider your calling. You weren't noble. You weren't the elite. Through the lens of the gospel, listen to me. That's what James is getting at in verses 9 through 11. The, through the lens of the gospel, the poor are rich. Through the lens of the gospel, the weak are strong. Through the lens of the gospel, mourners are comforted. Through the lens of the gospel, the hungry are satisfied. The humble are glorified. The persecuted are exalted. That's only through the lens of the gospel. And that's foolishness to the world. Jesus' finished work in the gospel gives you and I everything that we need, including the wisdom to walk confidently and boldly through trials. We, we've looked at this passage, and I tried to get away from it and tried to get away from it, but I feel the Lord would not let it get off my heart. Romans 8, 28-39. Listen, listen as I read this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He justified, and those whom He justified, He glorified. You see the unbreakable sequence there, the security of our salvation. What God began, He will carry to completion. He will make sure. Listen, Paul's response to that is this, all about the gospel. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Daniel sang about that this morning. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You see the sacrificial, generous, merciful character of our Father? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And, and 
put yourself in Paul's shoes. Go to 2 Corinthians 11 and read all that Paul suffered. Paul is literally looking at his sufferings and he's questioning. He's questioning, does this contradict your goodness? Does this? He's making sure. Listen to what he says. Will tribulation, will tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? God, will distress separate us from the love of Christ? God, will, will persecution, does that mean I'm separated from the love of Christ? Does famine mean that I'm separated? Does nakedness mean I'm separated? Does peril mean I'm separated? Does the sword, if I die, does that mean I'm separated from the love of Christ? Just that is written, for you, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Listen to what Paul answers. Verse 37. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. We don't kind of conquer. That's like super conquer. In our world, you're either a winner or a loser. And this goes way beyond that. We overwhelmingly conquer. It's not even close. Listen to what Paul says in verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, listen to this, nor height, nor depth, and in case you think you're going to weasel something in, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. We need that wisdom. God, God is taking us through things. Paul is writing Romans 8 to make us unshakably secure in the gospel no matter what you face in this life. No matter what you go through, you can have an unshakable confidence if you are in Christ, if you have admitted that you are a sinner, if you have repented of your sin, if you have looked upon Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the sole provision for your sin, not that plus something, that alone. He says you can be unshakably secure in that. That no matter what you face in your life, you're secure. To those who love God, to those who are found in Him, to those who have done what I just said in the gospel, acknowledge their sinfulness, repented of that sinfulness. Turn that sin, sinfulness to God. Verse 28 says that all things will work for your good. Verse 30 says that your final glorification is secure. You have an inheritance that cannot be touched. Verse 31 says that since God is for you, no one will successfully ever be against you. Verse 32 says that since God gave up His Son for you, He'll give you everything else you need to walk faithfully through this life. Verse 33 says that since God is the one who justifies you, no one can make a charge against you that'll stick. It's under the blood of Jesus. Go to the courtroom, you can look at 1 John 2, that Satan continually approaches God and all he does is accuse you and I. And you know what? He's right in his accusations. There's not a sin that he'll accuse me of that I'm not guilty of in a biblical sense. And you know what God does? Jesus Christ approaches the throne and says, Father, that's under the blood. Father, I died for that one too. Father, I died for that one too. No charge sticks. Verse 34 says that since Christ died and was raised and is at the right hand, He intercedes. That's the point. No one can condemn. Everything in that passage is leading us up to this very spot. Who will separate us from the love of Christ that is in, from the love of Christ? 
The point is that God does not promise His people escape from these things. He provides His people the power and the love and the perseverance to triumph over and through these things. And what Satan means to separate us from God's love, you know what God does? He draws us closer to His love. What Satan means to draw us away from God, God says, no, I'm going to draw them to me. And in that's the sense, hear me, that is the sense in which we overwhelmingly conquer. The very thing that Satan meant for harm, God uses for good. And, and the design of James, the design of Paul in, in the gospel is to give us a deep, firm, unshakable security in his all-conquering love that no matter what we face, It'll not separate us from His love. We need that wisdom. We need wisdom to trust Him and run to Him and hold fast to Him, even when all our circumstances say, don't do that. Paul says it in the beginning in Romans 8.1, For there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Listen to me, outside of Jesus Christ, there's condemnation. Paul says two and three times, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. If you, if you come in here today and you're, and you're a believer and you're a, you feel attacked, you feel like Satan is having his way with you, you feel like he's, he's persecuting you, you're going through trials and struggles, and, and, and all of us, listen, one day that's happening. For you who are in Christ Jesus, I challenge you, be bold and courageous and strong with the devil and remind him that there is nothing that can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing be bold. Get, get in Satan's face, if you will, and state with authority, I am loved by God through Christ, therefore you cannot touch me. E even if you kill me, I win. I win. That, that we need that wisdom. That's what James is saying. But you've got to believe and trust and have faith and be sure in the gospel. Satan is a defeated foe. Remind him of that. He is a conquered enemy. He doesn't do anything that's, not, uh, that's outside of the sovereignty of God. And this is wisdom, again, that only the gospel can give. And, and it's summed up in, in conclusion on your handout. Here's the gospel logic that, that I want us to believe as a church. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But the flip side in what James is writing is true. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Mark 8, 36. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What would it profit? Everything minus Jesus is nothing. And look, this only makes sense. This only adds up through faith in the gospel. I pray that we would be that church that takes everything back to the logic of the gospel, to the truth of the gospel that we would interpret every trial, every circumstance, everything through the logic of the gospel. But we would believe it by faith, that we would not doubt beyond our daily doubts, that when we do, we'll run to God and ask Him to take away those doubts, that by reading and studying and digesting God's Word, those doubts will be conquered, that we'll know Him intimately, that through that intimacy, we'll understand His character, and we can trust Him.